You, you look at different questions, and you look at different answers, and you piece it all together, and then you have to find a way to make it creatively applicable to everyone. And so this morning, for those of you who don't know, the way this works is that Jacob has a list of questions. This is not one of those where you can just sit here and bombard me with questions, and I look flabbergasted, and I can't really come up with an answer on the spot. But I have picked three questions out of Jacob's list, because when I had picked two, Jacob looked at me and said, you're going to need another one, because I know you. So we have three questions this morning, and we're going to examine them and try and make them as applicable as possible. But first, we're going to start in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. In this passage, Paul is warning Timothy to be on the lookout for something. He's warning him to watch out for what is known as false knowledge because it leads people astray. And the word here for knowledge is the Greek word gnosis or gnosis. And that word ties into directly the the study or the idea of Gnosticism. And so our first question this morning, if I can turn this on, our first question this morning revolves around Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? Where does it come from? What does it look like today? Now, this one, this this question was interesting to answer because Gnosticism is never really mentioned throughout the Bible by name. Gnosticism, though, when you look at knowledge, is mentioned. And you can look at this passage here in 1 Timothy and a couple other passages that I'll pull up that look like they're referring to that idea of seeking out Gnosticism or knowledge. And there are really two main ideas that come from when we look at Gnosticism that we deal with today. Now, Gnosticism, the first main idea, is a focus on human knowledge, which is why we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6 what Paul says when he tells Timothy to avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions for what is falsely called knowledge. Gnosticism seeks out human understanding or human knowledge rather than looking at faith. They try to find an example of, or an, a logical answer to what goes on and prove it through that. And Paul mentions this idea of reverent, irreverent babble and human knowledge rather than faith throughout different passages. And we're going to look at a couple of those. In First Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16, he says, But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will sp- spread like gangrene. Paul equates this idea of turning away from faith or seeking logical or answers for, for things that seem miraculous as a reverent babble. It takes away the power from God. It's irreverent. It doesn't revere God. In Colossians 2.8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Gnosticism, when it looks at human knowledge and human understanding, applies things by philosophy or what they can see or feel or understand. And again, it takes away from faith. And again, in Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul, whenever he talks about this idea of Gnosticism, is is talking about how it's filled with empty words or empty deceit. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's just going to get you 
studying and examining different things, but it doesn't get you anywhere in terms of faith or with God. Gnosticism is a religion that focuses then on more on human knowledge, which is philosophy. They're looking for philosophical, philosophical answers to problems that come up. And sometimes there are answers that, that can show where our faith is at. I'm not saying that's wrong, but what happens is there's an over-reliance on human knowledge when there should be that leap of faith. And so when, when we may, what we may see this in our day-to-day lives is that when we associate the work of God with a logical answer, that while my prayers, yes, they may have worked, but really it was the medical doctors. It was the medical solution that they came up with. Or there's a a focus on the geography around us to explain questions we may have about the earth. And I'm not saying anything like that is wrong, but when we start to rely on that solution or those logical answers, so to speak, instead of attributing God's power where it may be, then we start to see that idea of Gnosticism because we become overly reliant on human knowledge. And there's, like I said, there's nothing wrong with looking at things through a knowledgeable lens. We all do that. We all examine things to have our faith grow. But we have to be careful not to let it become overly reliant upon it. Now, the second focus of Gnosticism is a focus on spiritual rather than physical. And if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, I want to point out where this is. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 23, it looks like Paul is directly talking to one of the ideas of Gnosticism here. Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having buried with, been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from, his dead, from the dead. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Gnosticism focuses on the spiritual more so than the physical. And what I mean by this is there are two different strands of thought. They have the thought where your body, because it is physical, you can do whatever you want to it. It doesn't really matter because when the end comes, it'll be okay. That body will be thrown away. And the other train of thought is that you need your body. You have to physically exercise the demons out of your body. That means asceticism or strict laws about what you eat or don't eat, what you do to your body or don't do to your body. There's a discipline there. And again, these are two trains of thought, and perhaps one of the main ideas that comes up with the physical body is in verses 16 through 19 of Colossians 2. And it starts, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to the festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. The idea here is that there's nothing really beneficial when you discipline your body so severely like these people are. And there's, it's, it's not right to pass judgment because someone may say, well, I observe this holiday, or I don't do this with what I eat or what I drink. And they pass judgment on other people for doing so. 
Paul warns about this idea, this idea that the physical or spiritual are separate. Or not separate, but that asceticism and self-absence lead to a better, higher understanding of God. But perhaps the biggest idea when it comes to spiritual and physical pops up with Jesus. With Gnosticism, Jesus is just a man. There's no deity in him. Rather, through his understanding and ability to achieve full gnosis or full understanding or full knowledge, he had divine attributes come upon him. They believe that because Jesus was able to do this as a human being and achieving full gnosis, that the disciples can do so as well. It's a blueprint for us. But when we look at that, that, that kind of takes away a lot about Jesus as we know him. It takes away the fact that he was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. It takes away the fact that he is, the Holy Spirit abides in him, just as it abides in us, and it dwelled in him on this earth. And Paul talks about this in the beginning of Colossians chapter 2, when we looked at, in verse 9, where it says, the full, For the fullness of deity dwelled in Jesus. Gnosticism argues that Jesus was just a man. And so when we look at the real world, when we look at our lives, how we might run into this, well, we may have to deal with arguments that revolve around that issue. Was Jesus a deity? Or was he just a man who was able to achieve full understanding and full comprehension of the law and of human knowledge? This may look like laws on our food or our drink, what we can eat or what we can't eat, and how people look at us or, or may pass judgment on us because, well... They can't eat that, or, or how we look at others for what they don't eat or drink. Gnosticism is a very interesting idea, because at its core, it's, it's trying to get to a better understanding of what's being said in the Bible and what's being said in the world. But with Gnosticism, what you see is that jump without faith. They don't have that jump. They rely more on that knowledge than trusting in what God has done. And in order to deal with Gnosticism, then we have to rely on the truth. Because when we start looking at Gnosticism's ideas or ideals, there's some holes there, like Jesus not being a deity. And when we look at the, what the Bible says, we can look at it and compare it and realize the truth that's before us tells us something different. Paul calls Gnosticism irreverent babble or false knowledge. The truth is different. The Bible is different. God's inspired word is not irreverent babble. It's not false knowledge. It's there to help us to understand what is useful for salvation. That's what Gnosticism is, and that's where we may encounter it or deal with it in today. And our next question is going to start in Matthew chapter 12, if you'll turn with me there. Matthew chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 36. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. We are all called to give an account for what we say, what we do, what we think. But when do our actions actually become accountable? When do we understand what we're doing as right or wrong or, or how they may apply to us in judgment? And so we have to understand and we have to ask this question, what is the age of accountability? How do we measure the moral development of children? Now, I, I don't have any children, so I can't tell you this is what I've seen in my life. 
But I do have the Bible and I do have examples around me and I had Jacob's help and we were able to come to this idea or understanding that I hope works for you all. Because Matthew in chapter 12 verse 36 tells us we're all going to be accountable, we understand that our actions are going to be used to judge us. But what exactly do we give an account for? Who, who holds us accountable? And that's where we have to start this question. In Matthew 16, 27, we read, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In this passage, we see that every single person is going to be judged for what they have done. And they're going to be judged by the Father. That's where we're held accountable. That's where our actions are used to judge us. In Romans 14, 12, we read that, So then each one of us will give, us an, or will give an account of himself to God. We're all accountable. And in 1 Peter 4, 5, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The judgment does not just come to those of us who are alive when Christ comes back. The judgment comes to all people who have lived or died in this world. We give an account for the words we say, the actions we do, the way we treat one another, the thoughts we think. We give an account to God, who is the judge of all that we do. Even if that judgment comes when we've already passed away. Accountability comes to those who are able to know their actions. But where does that begin? And so when we look at the idea of when does it begin in our life, we have to look at a child. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 shows us this idea of how a child thinks about things differently. 7, starting in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This prophecy here is about Christ. But the fascinating thing about this prophecy is what is said about Christ and his understanding. There is going to be a point in Christ's life where he doesn't understand the difference between right and evil. But when he does, he will begin to eat curds and honey. There's a mental development here in children or in, in a child, in Christ especially. And so we understand that accountability develops when children are able to make moral decisions. And what I mean by this is there's this idea called object permanence. When we think of kids, when we think of children, if they are caught throwing something at a sibling or hitting someone, and mom and dad comes in and tells them, no, don't do that, well, they're not going to do that because there's right or wrong, there's sin and, and good. They're going to do it because mom came in and told them not to. But then once mom leaves, well, mom's gone. I can do it again. They don't realize that when something isn't there, it can still be there. They think when something disappears, it's gone. Imagine, or think about peekaboo. When you cover up your face, a child actually thinks you're gone. You're not there. Yet when you show your hands again, it surprises them, and oh, wow, they really are there. They don't have the ability or perception to conceive God being there when they can't see him. And so there is this gap in understanding here. 
And for a while, a child cannot just grasp that idea. And even once they do grasp the idea that something can be there when it doesn't appear to be, there's still some type of mental growth that has to happen. They have to be able to understand why something is right or wrong, why something is done the way it is done. And this also applies not just to children, but to adults who who may be struggling with mental incapacities as well. There are adults that we may all know of who just can't grasp things, whether it's severe autism or just some type of disability, they don't have the ability to grasp concepts like everyone else does. They don't have that capacity. And so they are still as innocent as a child. Accountability comes when there's that mental growth, when there's that development to grasp abstract ideas and understanding. But there's another understanding we have to have to the age of accountability. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. When we look at the New Testament, the the gospel is preached to men and women. It is preached to adults. And those are the ones who respond, and eventually there, there are cases where their whole houses respond. But what we see in Acts chapter 17 shows us that there's a difference between children and adults. Look with me in verse 34. Or starting in verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. The, The terms used to describe those who are following Christ here, or obeying what Paul has just said about Christ, are men and women. And we see this throughout the whole entire New Testament. It's men and women obeying the gospel, or men obeying the gospel and their whole household following. The gospel is obeyed by someone who can be described as an adult, not someone who can be described as a child. Now, this can be different for all of us. There are all times in our own lives where we make that leap from being a child to being an adult in our understanding and the way we handle situations. We all mature differently and learn at different rates, and so it comes to us at different times. But however this may appear for all of us, there's one simple answer for it. There's a time where we become adults. There's a time when we put aside those childlike ideas or understandings of things and become adults. We become men and women who can weigh the cost of Christianity and know what is right and know what is sinful. We're able to critically understand the gospel and the Bible, and, but it's no longer just stories or illustrations. But because the Bible does not give us an exact age for accountability, it's kind of a gray area. There's nothing I can come up here and say, this age is the exact age we're supposed to be. It just tells us there's an idea here. Look with me in Ecclesiastes, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Accountability comes when we're no longer children and when we're able to grasp abstract ideas. But what Ecclesiastes says helps us to understand this idea. Because while there may not be an age when we all become accountable, our actions and our youth will still be judged by God. Because there is a time when we do know what is right and what is wrong. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. 
But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. I can't stand up here and say, well, accountability comes when your faith is succinct. When your faith is your own, when you move out of your house. I can't say that because Ecclesiastes 9 tells me that as a young man, I can be doing anything I want, but my actions will still be accountable. They'll still be judged. And those actions still come when I'm in my own house, when I was growing up. There is a time when all of us know why something is right or something is wrong, if we can grasp those ideas. We can understand, though, that God knows when someone knows what is right is wrong. We have the when we have the capacity to understand different ideas or concepts, and when we appear as no longer children, whether that's through maturation or the way we look physically, well, there's an age of accountability there. But there is no specific age. Finally, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at our last question for the, evening, for the morning. Matthew 27, 9 is an interesting passage. What we have in Matthew 27 is a prophecy being fulfilled when it comes to Jesus. Matthew 27 and verse 9 Or start, let's start in verse 8. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him whom a price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave, the, gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Matthew 27, 9 is an interesting quotation, because if you look in your footnotes, it says Zechariah. But Matthew quotes it as Jeremiah saying the prophecy. And it, it kind of leads you to wonder, well, is Matthew mistaken? Is he misquoting his scripture, even though he was an apostle? The passage in Matthew 27, as we look at, is about Judas and how he betrayed Christ, and how he threw down the pieces of silver that he had given him. But in Zechariah 11, if you'll look with me there, Zechariah 11, oh, sorry, I meant to put the question up there, Zechariah 11 in verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter. That's what Zechariah says, and it, it's exactly the words that Matthew uses. So then we have to wonder, why is this attributed to Jeremiah? Why does he get credit? Well, there are two ideas that could work here. In Jeremiah, he uses a, there's a prophecy that is similar to Zechariah's. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. What we can see is maybe Matthew combined prophecies. Maybe you took some from Jeremiah and some from Zechariah and combined it and just credited maybe the more well-known prophet. Because in Jeremiah chapter 19, starting in verse 1, we see a very similar idea. Thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priest and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O the kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. 
because the people have forsaken me and profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons and the fires burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And then in this place I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem, and will cause their people to fall by the sword, and before their enemies, and by the hand of those who seek their life. I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And I will make the city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by will be horrified and make hiss because of all of its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress, with which their enemies, those who seek their life, afflict them. Then you shall break the flask, and in the sight of the men who go with you, and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So I will break the pe- this people in this city, as one breaks a potter's vessel. One of the reasons people have thought that uh, Matthew might have joined these prophecies is because they use similar words. They talk about potters or, potters or flasks. They talk about fields and how it's a field of blood. They talk about breaking the flask. And so there's an idea here, or there's an answer here that says, well, he looked at similar words in his quotations, and he just put them together and, and worked with it. And the people of Israel would have known these prophecies, and they would have been able to understand it. That can be an answer, but I don't, I don't think that's the best answer we have. However, back in historical times, the way they, they had their Old Testaments or their scriptures written out was on scrolls with one title at the top. But throughout that entire scroll, there could be many different authors. And so what we see with Zechariah, looking back historically, is it was part of a document called the Twelve or the Book of Twelve. And it was likely under the name of Jeremiah. So while it is written by Zechariah, it's grouped together with the other minor prophets and given the name of Jeremiah over the top of it. And it's not until later dates, I think it's past the 1100s, that we get to the idea of how we have our scripture, where it's grouped in separate own chapters and their own verses. Back then, it was all a conglomerate or, or group. Therefore, when Matthew cites Jeremiah, he's most likely citing that scroll that has the title of Jeremiah on the top of it. And most of the audience back in this time would have known where Matthew was coming from. They would have known where he was quoting from in the scripture he was saying. And so this isn't a misquote but rather it's just a different way of quoting passages than we have today. And I think that's fascinating because oftentimes when we look at the Bible, we view it in the lens, well, everything's going to be like the way it is today. The way it's written was, was written so it could be there today. But that's not true because when we look back in history, they had a different way of quoting or reading, and it's all just a fascinating study on its own. And so this morning, as we went through these questions, I hope that the answers that I gave were at least somewhat helpful. It was, again, a very interesting study for me. I had some interesting time where I was sitting through different books and sifting through and trying to find somewhere where I could have a definite answer for each one of these. But each one of these ideas is critical to our growth spiritually. When we understand Gnosticism, it applies to our knowledge rather than faith. When you understand the age of accountability, well, there's always a time, or there's always a time for us to become accountable. But it's not exactly written out for us in the passages. And then in Matthew, we see that quotations happened differently back then. 
And it's not a reason to fret because it's still accurate. At this time, we're going to go ahead and be dismissed for our classes.